This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It is my great pleasure to interview Bruce Kidd. Professor Kidd is a Canadian historian, author, and academic administrator, currently the principal for University of Toronto Scarborough. He was also one of Canada's greatest track and field athletes. Bruce Kidd won a gold medal in the six-mile track race and a bronze medal in the three-mile race at the 1962 Commonwealth Games. He was also a member of the Canadian 1964 Summer Olympics team. A documentary film called Runner, which is outstanding, was made about him when he was only 19 years old. We are taping this interview on February 2nd, 2018. The 23rd Winter Olympic Games start just a week from now in Pyeongchang, South Korea. We would therefore like to dedicate this podcast to the history of the Olympics and, in particular, Canada's participation in the Olympic Games, both winter and summer. Bruce, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Well, thank you very much, Greg. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. Now, among the many books you've written and edited, you've covered some of the history of the Olympics and some other games, including the Pan American Games. You focused quite often on the history of Canadian sports in relation to the Olympics. Bruce, there are very few uh, Canadians I can think of uh, that would be better positioned to give us a potted history of the modern Olympics and Canada's participation in them. Can you do that for us right now? Well, I'll try to be brief on this. Uh, Canadians have been part of the Olympic project uh, almost from the beginning. Uh, the modern games as we know them uh, were uh, initiated by the French aristocrat Pierre de Coubertin in the late 19th century uh, as a way of, uh, as, a, as a project of educational reform through sport and physical activity. And uh, because Coubertin was part of the late 19th century European peace movement as a way of bringing people together under peaceful auspices to get to know each other, to get to uh, admire each other in the hopes that uh, they would talk through or become a force to talk through conflict and thus uh, prevent war. All of that was organized around sport. There were no Canadians who participated in the first of the Coubertin Games in Athens in 1896, but Canadians uh, heard about them and wanted to go. The next games were organized in Paris in 1900 in a very haphazard way, but uh, even then a number of Canadians uh, found their way to Paris and competed in those games. By 1908, the International Olympic Committee had organized itself to the point where they, they they required athletes to be entered by national Olympic committees, thus forcing the various sport participating communities around the world to create national organizations to hold trials and to organize participation in the games. And the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, dates from that effort uh, prior to the 1908 Olympic Games, and ever since 1908, we, we, we've sent teams, uh, I guess with the 
the one exception of the Moscow Games in 1980 uh, because of the ill-advised uh, boycott. In the 1920s, when uh, Norway, uh, Switzerland, and France were interested in creating a cycle of Winter Olympic Games, Canada very quickly joined, the Canadian sports leaders of that time quickly joined with them uh, to sponsor the idea of, uh, of Winter Olympic Games as well, uh, because the winter sports have always been important to us. So Canada was, was part of the, the lobbying, the organizing group for, for those games. So we've been active players in the, the Olympics or the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics almost from their inception. Now, now, Bruce, it used to be uh, that the Winter Olympics, at least by some, were seen as the poor cousin of the Summer Olympics. Uh, was this true, and is this still true if it was true? They were always considered subordinate, smaller, because the winter sports only initially attracted those from winter countries. Uh, there were only really a, a few athletic communities that really took them seriously. Uh, but uh, because, uh, f for a number of reasons, the spread of sport is the way in which uh, technology enables people even in, in uh, temperate or, or even hot countries to uh, engage with artificial ice and so on, uh, uh, some of the winter sports. The numbers of countries that have become involved has increased so that in Pyeongchang there will be at least 90 countries. And, and, and more than half the world's population participating in them. They also, uh, because of the time of the year, um, usually February, became very attractive to international television audiences. So they became major games in their own right, and step by step, they've taken on a life of their own. In, in, in the, the early days, the Winter Games had to be hosted by the country and organizing committee that was staging the summer game. But then they were split off, and in the 1990s, uh, they were even given a, a different cycle. So now the Winter Olympics are every uh, four years, but in uh, you know a two-year stagger from the Olympic Games. So the Winter Games are this year. The next summer games won't be until 2020 uh, in Tokyo. Now, uh if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, ask you a little bit about your personal history because it's so relevant here. Can you tell us uh, what it's really like to be an Olympic competitor based on your experience in the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo? Well, I'd rush to say that uh, my games are, are different in many respects than the games today. Smaller, uh, fewer countries, fewer events, fewer women. But uh, there are many similarities and continuities, to be sure. Uh, you're, you're part of a very special club, the very, very best athletes in the world. Uh, you're, in a, you're in a city that has spent five or six or ten years uh, preparing to host the rest of the world and to use that occasion to spruce up its infrastructure, its facilities, restaurants, and its hotels. It's used that period to advance technology in ways that will enable it to, to brand itself as a result of the Olympic publicity. When we arrived in, in Tokyo, 
in addition to the extraordinarily beautiful and, and well-fashioned athletic facilities, we were there for the opening of bullet train technology. So that was introduced uh, with the Tokyo Olympic Games. Uh, new, new forms of television projection were organized for them and a whole slew of new consumer products, Japanese cameras, Japanese cars, you know, recording devices and so on came on the market at the same time. So we we participated at a time when Japan burst out on the world stage after 20 years of a post-war, very difficult reconstruction. Those were games, too, where um, it was the first time the games were in Asia, and there was a real effort by the organizers and within the Olympic Village and within the Olympic venues to encourage participants and spectators to think about themselves as part of a global community and uh, and a global community that was was uh, dedicated uh, to you know friendship and uh, and understanding. One of my strongest memories, non-athletic memories from those games, is traveling around Tokyo and after the games traveling around Japan and being approached by Japanese of all ages who, who had no English at all, but would, would come up to me, bow, and say, no more Hiroshima. Please join with us in calling for an end to nuclear war. So in a sense, Bruce, this went back to the origins of the modern Olympics as part of a peace movement. That is correct. That is correct. And, and you know, there will be many of those same features in uh, Pyeongchang extraordinary technology. Many of the vehicles that will get uh, athletes and visitors to the venues will be driverless. Demonstration of that pioneering and somewhat uh, daunting technology. There will be a much higher rate of of communication uh, technology. These will be the first 5G powered games that, as I understand it, will will send data uh, around the world 10 times faster than what we have uh, today. There'll be lots of other AI features. Athletes and officials, when they register, will be given a smart wristband that will enable them, like these you know, Google helpers, uh, to, uh, to just simply command services in their room, in the, the, the dining hall, the athletic facilities, and in the you know, the medical physio facilities. So these games uh, will be the, the demonstration point for a number of remarkable new Korean-led approaches to technology and artificial intelligence. So how do you think the Canadian Olympic team is going to do in Korea? What's your prediction? Well, Donna Spencer of Canadian Press is calling for 29 to 33 medals that will make us, again, one of the top countries and even one of the very best. People argue whether you should measure the best by the total number of medals or the number of gold medals. That being said, there are remarkable Canadian athletes who will be performing and who who have had very good uh, years. Kaylee Humphreys, the bobsledder, uh, Mikhail Kingsbury, the world champion, you know, mogul skier, Alex Harvey, I guess my favorite because my favorite winter sport is Nordic skiing, cross-country skiing, and will be uh, will be contending for one of the medals in the 50K 
Nordic uh, Ski Race. We have outstanding curlers uh, led by Kevin uh, Keogh and uh, Rachel Homan. We will have two outstanding hockey teams, uh, figure skaters. I think uh, these will be very, very exciting games from a Canadian perspective. And, of course, there will be brilliant athletes from other countries around the world. Now, for those of us that are armchair viewers as opposed to athletes, uh, uh, often uh, we end up getting focused on one sport, hockey. Why is that, and what are we missing out by being so focused on hockey in the Olympics? Well, I think we're focused on hockey because for decades, and and network, uh, I would even say a conspiracy of, of hockey corporations, advertisers, and and television networks have promoted hockey so endlessly that we take it for granted as the winter sport. And it's a great sport, and I will be glued to the television during those games. But it's not the only Winter Olympic sports. It's not the only way that humans have created you know, joy and excitement and, and life at a time you know, using the elements of the winter uh, you know, turning the season of death into a dance of life. I mean, the sliding sports, the skiing and, and, and bobsledding, the skating sports, they're remarkable. They're remarkable. And anybody who's done them uh, knows that they enrich our lives in extraordinary ways. So I, I welcome the Olympics as an opportunity to, to penetrate beyond the monoculture of hockey and, shall we say, men's hockey, uh, to see these other sports. I, I should also say that uh, it's not only the Winter Olympics, but the Winter Paralympics. There are Paralympic Games that will follow, and they will be uh, extraordinary too, both for Canada and, and for the world. And they will show just amazing performances by, uh, by athletes with disabilities that will also give us inspiration uh, in remarkable ways. Now, Bruce, you've been heavily involved with the Canadian Olympic uh, Committee, and uh, you're currently even an honorary member of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Uh, You've also written a bit about the issue of corruption in the Olympics. Uh, What is this history of corruption? What, What has been its evolution? What is its current source? And uh, do you think it can be rooted out? We've just heard about Russian athletes and all of that goes along with the disqualification of Russia from the Olympics uh, due to doping and uh, etc. Can you tell us a bit about this for those of us who really don't understand what's going on? Well, uh, it's it's a long and complex story. There are powerful uh, incentives in sport because of the bragging rights, because of the financial rewards in, in winning. And that's true for individual athletes and teams, as well as as sports organizations and even governments. All governments, including Canada, invest in sport in in part because of the the contribution that winning teams make to their brand, to uh, the the symbolic and I would say psychological sense of well-being that uh, that victories create in uh, in communities. There are also tremendous incentives to to host uh, games because uh, they they also bring uh, branding and financial benefits. And so for for the longest time, 
there have been people who've tried to circumvent or go around the rules of sport and also uh, the rules of or the decisions affecting the allocation of games and other benefits. There's always been cheating in sports. Uh, and, and the Olympic movement, like, like every sports organization in the world, has tried to, to prevent and, and minimize that and, and investigate cheaters and, and discipline them. But in the last 20 or 30 years, with the rewards increasing exponentially, the technology through doping and other means of, of getting an advantage also increasing. You know, more people have, I, I, it's hard to tell whether it's more people but there continue to be people who are are tempted or persuaded to cheat. One way is doping, one way is to bribe judges, and, and, and so on. Same is true in the awarding of games. And, you know, here you have uh, this sordid history of, of cities and countries bidding for games in the Olympics for the World Cup who've, uh, who felt they've had to buy off uh, voters. And, and that it's a huge embarrassment. It just brings out the worst. So the Olympic movement has tried to uh, egged on by athletes, advocates for fair play, and uh, international NGOs who called for uh, open, transparent decision making. The the Olympic Committee and other bodies have been pushed to provide much more transparency on decision making and finances and. We've gone through several stages of that, and I think we're in a better place now in 2018 than we were even 10 years ago, but it's an ongoing struggle. There are parts of the world where where people tell me that corruption is, 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 is not regarded as an evil or an ethical breach, but simply is a way of life. If you want someone to do something for you, you, you do them a favor, and that's taken for granted. So one of the difficulties is that the the ethics governing the Olympic world, made up of more than 200 national communities, the ethical standard is not shared across that uh, is not across that globe. Coubertin, a uh, hundred and so many years ago, because of the the peace project that he uh, and the educational project that he put into play was most interested in having the whole world there and sought to to encourage national representatives from every country in the world to participate. But in order to do that, to have a big tent, you need a low threshold. If we had Canadian values as a condition of, of entry, there would be a lot of countries that would simply refuse to participate. So the trick, and that is that is true about doping, there are countries who and, and people who say, what's the big deal? It's administered by physicians. Uh, it's safe. What's the big deal? So governing the Olympic world is as difficult as governing, say, a country like Canada with so many differences. And getting complete agreement uh, to combat doping or combat cheating or combat uh, corruption is going to be an ongoing struggle. Now, it's been 50 years since you participated in the Tokyo Olympics. Can you uh, give us your assessment of how Canadian Olympians and the Canadian Olympic team are faring today, both winter and summer, relative to the to the past that you're so familiar with as well? I think Canadians are doing much, much better today than we did 50 years ago. I mean, we were ambitious. We were competitive. 
we came back with our share of, of medals. But uh, the Canadian sports system, the state-funded uh, and directed system of high performance in the Olympic sports is, is much more systematic uh, in talent identification, training and preparation, you know, last minute uh, preparation, uh, giving people experience. And, and as a result, we do much better, even when the rest of the world is much more competitive than it was 50 years ago with many more countries participating with 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 many governments investing way more on a per capita basis than than Canadians do and the corporate sector uh, involved in uh, a very significant way in a way it was never involved in uh, in in the 1960s so I'm very proud of what our athletes and coaches and officials uh, have achieved in those years we are an even stronger sporting nation today I think, than we were 50 years ago. Well, Bruce, what an optimistic note to end it on. And if there's one more thing I can add, we talked about similarities between Tokyo and uh, Pyeongchang. And I would just like to say, and I'll try to, to start it with this, the other strong similarity between my experience in Tokyo and the Winter Games that will be opening shortly is um, is the effort to use this as a, a event to lower some of the temperatures in the world and bring uh, people from countries of uh, opposing positions together. What is remarkable is that these games have occasioned a diplomatic truce between North and South Korea, which will enable a joint Korean team to uh, march in the opening ceremonies together and to participate in some sports together, notably women's hockey. And while this may be only symbolic, and while it may only be short-lived, uh, it demonstrates to the entire world the importance of, uh, of bringing people together under peaceful auspices. And that is a very strong similarity and a historical continuity of the Olympic movement, which I'm very proud of. Well, I would never want to estimate uh, the impact of symbolism on that global stage of the Olympics. It, in the past, has had resounding impacts. So... Thank you again for this interview. Okay. My guest today was Bruce Kidd, principal of the University of Toronto Scarborough and noted sports scholar and historian. Among his many books, Professor Kidd is the author of The Struggle for Canadian Sport, published in 1996, the winner of the North American Society of Sports History Book Prize. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University, and it was produced by Sumit Dami. Thank you all.